Welcome back to our next edition of the CBB Review Studio Podcast. I am Dan Siegel. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ben Anderson. Ben, the Final Four is set up. San Diego State, Miami, Florida Atlantic, and UConn. How does that sound to you? It's just like we all expected. I mean, if you didn't have those four teams in your bracket, then you obviously weren't paying attention to the regular season of college basketball. This is fantastic. I cannot wait. This is unique in every manner. I don't think you can say it any other way than that. And it was funny because when we did our first weekend recap, you were talking about how the upsets, we were actually both really talking about this, how the upsets that happened were quality upsets, but not the quantity of upsets. And it was still set up to be the major power teams in the final four. And that's not exactly what happened, but I've totally come around on it. I am very excited for basically what will be the polar opposite final four of last year, which was a final four of blue bloods. I like the change crazy statistics about this year. No one seeds were in the elite eight. That is the first time ever. And the previous Five champions, I think, were all one seeds. 2022 Kansas, 2021 Baylor, 2019 Virginia, 2018 Villanova, 2017 UNC. All one seeds. There are no one seeds in the Elite Eight, obviously not the Final Four. This is incredible. Ben, are you ready to go region by region and break down what happened this past weekend in the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight? I am. One more stat for you before we do that, though. There are no top three seeds in the Final Four for the first time ever as well. Only 2011 had a higher average seed in the Final Four, but three-seed UConn won that year as well. Let's see if the Husky can do it again. And that was also a Jim Laranega year, right, with George Mason? No, no, 2011, not 2006. Oh, my fault, my fault. No, VCU VCU was 2011. Okay, I'm getting my mid-major runs mixed up. But either way, another year for that is 2023. Let's get into it. We got the East region starting with, we will go we'll, – we'll start with Florida Atlantic and Tennessee. How about we'll do that? Florida Atlantic, 62, Tennessee, 55. And this is funny because the first half of the game, it looked like Florida Atlantic could not match up with Tennessee's defense. Ben, you were texting me about how you thought FAU really was not going to win this game. They weren't really playing like a team that belonged. And then – what did they start doing? They started knocking down shots, and Tennessee's offense couldn't pick up. Michael Forrest, shout out to him, three three-pointers off the bench, and Florida Atlantic advances. Yeah, I think your second point was more important there. Tennessee, the injury to Zakai Ziegler finally caught up with them. They shot only 15 out of 40 from two-point range, and that's just not going to cut it in a Sweet 16 game, especially if Florida Atlantic was going to start hitting shots like they did in the second half. An unfortunate way to go out for the volunteers, but the Owls made it happen. I mean, they've been coming back or they've been playing in close games all throughout this tournament. And in the final minutes, I don't I'm not sure there's a team you'd rather have than Florida Atlantic. Yeah. They we'll, we'll talk about them actually in a second, but let's get into this game because Kansas State 98, Michigan State 93. So this was just an incredible game. Overtime was deserved by the quality of this matchup, and it totally happened. And you can talk about this first off. The Marquise Noel play that has taken the world by storm where he dribbles up the court, 
acts like he's arguing with his coach, Jerome Tang, and he's not even looking at the play. And then who is it? Keontae Johnson that just back cuts the defense and he throws a no look alley-oop pass to Keontae Johnson, who behind his head does a slam dunk. And it was the play of the tournament. Everybody's talking about it. I, how about that? Marquise Noel is just a magician. With Marquise, absolutely. 20 points, 19 assists at the NCAA tournament record for assists in one game. Just an incredible performance overall, especially for the New York native to do it at MSG. Just a fantastic experience overall. For my money, that is still the game of the tournament. That's the one I enjoyed watching the most, although there are some worthy competitors that, they'll, that we'll get to later in this podcast. Really just an impressive showing overall from Kansas State in general. We had players make shots, and that's what you needed to do against Michigan State. Tom Ezzo will be having backdoor cuts in his nightmares for years to come after mm. this game. Shout out Ish Masood. He made some huge shots when they mattered. Um, and those are the type of guys that Jerome Tang recruited to come to Kansas State. He had a really solid core um, and just a fantastic game to watch overall. This Last play of the game, though, is kind of my pet peeve about Tyson Walker at the end. First off, he played a great game in the great tournament. But Tyson Walker did what a lot of people, I feel like, do at the end of games when they're down three. They need a three. And it was when a play starts to break down, just panic. And instead of realizing there's five, six seconds on the clock, you still have time to get a decent shot, he panicked and ends up getting stripped by guess who and noel ended up laying the ball in the basket for good measure on the other end but it's just an unfortunate way for michigan state season to end especially after just how magical not magical but just how well they've played this this entire run that they made and uh it's just a pet peeve of mine because I've seen it so much. Such talented, such clutch players who don't know how to handle those late clock situations. No, I agree with you. And that's the thing about this game. Michigan State played well. It's not as if they played poorly. A.G. Hoggard had a fantastic game. He had, I believe, 26, 27 points um, on really efficient numbers. And Kansas State just played better. Like That's, mm-hmm. that's the only way you can put it. Kansas play, State played better, and they were off to the Elite Eight. And then we had Kansas State and Florida Atlantic. Final score, Florida Atlantic 79, Kansas State 76. Now, this was Saturday night, and it was advertised as the appetizer. The appetizer to UConn and Gonzaga, which was going to be an amazing game. This one was just kind of the setup, but turned out to be the opposite. This game was by far the better game. And I guess I just declared my Vlad Golden breakout one game early because he was the reason Florida Atlantic won this game. In my opinion, 14 points, 13 rebounds, just huge contributions on both ends. And I felt like nobody on Kansas state can match up with his seven foot one frame. And that's really what made the difference in this one. Yeah. A couple of other things to note about this game. Keontae Johnson was in foul trouble the entire night, eventually fouled out. Around midway through the second half, Florida Atlantic at that 30, 30 minute mark sort of turned the game, in my opinion, to something that they controlled. Florida FAU had really a balanced distribute a balanced distribution of scoring, had four players between 13 and 17 points. And Marquise Noel had a great game again, but he did have some pretty crucial turnovers 
um, at, at certain times in the game, had some shots he probably didn't necessarily want anyone unless they were named Noel to take. Um, and eventually, you know, that last play, they didn't even get a shot off, which was, I mean, if you're talking about the Michigan State ending of that game, to have Kansas State end like that is probably equally as frustrating, if not more. So tough, tough way to end for the Wildcats. But Florida Atlantic, in their second ever tournament appearance, is off to the Final Four. And their first ever tournament win happened in this tournament, which is crazy. They did enter the dance at 31-3. and three. Somehow we're still considered an underdog. I mean, we doubted them. A lot of people lumped them in that category with Charleston, who is also a three-loss team. I think they went in, in thir- with 30-3. and three. And I think we were smart enough to know that there is a difference between Florida Atlantic and Charleston, even at the time that the bracket was selected. There's a reason one of them was a nine seed, one of them was a 12 seed. But it's still, even though it's an underdog story, it proves that, and Florida Atlantic has done this themselves, they are a quality team. And they ran through Conference USA, which is a good league, and it just it shows something about that level of college basketball. And I'm, I say that level specifically because Conference USA and – terms of its membership is about to fall apart, but that level of college basketball, not all mid-majors are, not all mid-major conferences, not all mid-major teams are created equal. Florida Atlantic is a, just a quality team this year. I, I really don't think this is a fluky run. I think they are a really good basketball team that is capable of beating the teams that they did in non-fluky circumstances. And, and they did. They're no, awesome. I absolutely agree. Uh, one last thing on Florida Atlantic. I think there is a very valid argument for Dusty May to be National Coach of the Year, um, given that, A, he's reached the Final Four, and, B, um, he took a team that was preseason fifth in the Conference USA, I believe. No first-place votes. So, really, if you combine those two aspects and with a three-loss season, he's got to be in the conversation, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, th- I think they do the voting this coming week, right? They do the vote. I know CBS does. I'm not sure about other other yeah. institutions, but yeah. It's gotta be probably him in the running, Jerome Tang, even though the head to head, man. Head, but he has a great case for it. I believe Kansas State was finished picked to finish last in the Big Twelve and Kansas State turned around literally their entire roster in that one season. So Incredible story, but FAU comes out on top. Let's move on to our second region we're going to talk about today. It's the West, and we're going to start with this Arkansas-UConn game. UConn wins this one, 88-65. UConn, really, I guess they everyone talks about peaking at the right time. Well, UConn is kind of the opposite. They slumped at the right time. They were this hot. We talked about it in November and December, and then January, they – slumped and now they're back to like they were playing in November and December just beating everybody being the breaks off of everybody and honestly Ben this was not much of a game was it no I mean Arkansas just ran into a buzzsaw and sometimes sometimes you just run into teams that are on runs and you can't do anything about it I'm not saying Arkansas had a bad year they had a bad game everyone would have a bad game against how UConn played on I believe was it Thursday night um you know, it is what it is. And I think uh, the Hawks had a great year. Anthony Black had a really good game, but outside of him, nothing was really working for the Razorbacks there. UConn moves on pretty easily. 
And yeah, we doubted UConn's guard play, but here's the thing about UConn. They now have showed us, and they showed us before the tournament too, but they have that mix of players such as Jordan Hawkins who could create their own shots and knock down a million threes. And they also have their bigs, but their bigs are not the centerpiece of their offense. Their bigs are very good, but they just complement everything else that they have. And that's just what's making UConn so great. On the bottom side of the Sweet 16, we had Gonzaga and UCLA. Second time in three years these teams have met in the NCAA tournament, and it did not disappoint. Final score, Gonzaga 79, UCLA 76. Yeah, the rubber match, if you want to call it that. You know, you mentioned the one two years ago with Jalen Suggs banking in the buzzer beater there, but the first one happened all the way back in 2006 where UCLA came back and won the game. So this was sort of the deciding factor. And Gonzaga, I thought they were dead in the water, especially during the first half. I was like, this is the game where their defense catches up to them. This is the game where they finally can't outscore their opponent because UB, uh, UCLA excuse me, was operating on all cylinders, took a 13-point lead into halftime, but Gonzaga found a way to come all the way back. But, you know, the game wasn't over. I thought it was over with two minutes left. Gonzaga up nine. Tell them what happened, Dan. Well, yeah, UCLA won a little bit of a run, and they ended up actually hitting a big shot, very similar to what happened in the first UCLA, or I guess the second UCLA-Gonzaga meeting that you talked about. UCLA hits a big shot, and we thought that was going to be, you know, the storyline. And then in the final seconds, once again, it's Gonzaga who comes right back with the dagger. It was Julian Strother who had the logo three, Finished with 16 points, an up-and-down game. It was mostly the Drew Timmy show, but Strother's logo three was the deciding shot in this game, and that's what put um, Gonzaga ultimately over the top, 79-76. to The strange thing is, like you said, like it was really back and forth because at first UCLA was the one up. They were up 46-33 to at half, and – like you said, like it's Gonzaga's defense that held UCLA scoreless for over 10 minutes to get back in the game. Like, what? Yeah, an incredible game. Incredible performance from Drew Timmy having 36 points. I mean, come on. That's what you want to see out of your best player in an NCAA tournament game with these kind of stakes. Yeah, the, the defense stood up. I mean, really, that was super impressive. I do think. Malachi Smith and Hunter Salas playing more minutes was really important for Gonzaga, considering their guard struggles, you could call them, throughout the latter half of the season. It was nice to see them step up and ultimately help Gonzaga to the victory. And Julian Strother, like you mentioned, hitting that three-point shot, that's, a, that's an all-timer. It's not better than Jalen Suggs, but it's certainly up there when, it, when we're talking about the 2023 tournament moments. Well, it was more, it was more similar to the Villanova national, win the national championship in terms of the way the play was set up. But, into, yeah. A lot of deja vus in that one moment right there. But then ultimately Gonzaga's run, like I said, came to an end. And same thing as Arkansas. They ran into a buzzsaw. But in this case, I feel like we could criticize Gonzaga a little bit more. And first off, we could credit UConn. Final score, like I said, 82-54. We could credit UConn because they balled out. And their interior defense was huge. Sonogo and Klingon just able to match up with Timmy shout out to Joey Calcaterra off the bench. He really helped hit a couple threes and keep that cushion, keep the lead coming for UConn. 
and Gonzaga's offense went cold. I, I look if you told me Gonzaga would lose to in the Elite Eight, they lose to UConn after a nice run. I wouldn't be surprised, right? They're they're a good team, arguably great team. They have flaws. If you told me they would lose by only scoring fifty four points, I would be totally surprised for you to tell me that. But quite frankly, it's easy to look back on it now. But the entire tournament, their guards were super cold, especially from beyond the arc. Yeah, and let's not ignore the elephant in the room here either. Drew Timmy did pick up his fourth foul early in the second half. And look, UConn was going to win this game no matter what. The way they were playing, Gonzaga wasn't going to be able to run with them, as you mentioned before. They just didn't have the outside shooting available to make a, an, an offense similar to what the Huskies were putting together, especially in the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight. But it is kind of disappointing to not see Timmy – uh, be able to play, to just not see Gonzaga at their full strength due to foul trouble. No one wants to have that happen in arguably the biggest game of the tournament so far, which is kind of a bummer. Um, but at the end of the day, the Zags had more problems than Drew Timmy being in foul trouble. No, and the last thing we'll talk about with Drew Timmy, because he did get a curtain call at the end of the game. He had an incredible career, and we'll talk about this more in the offseason, I'm sure, when there's a lot less right pressing to talk about but what a career leading scorer of all time in Gonzaga basketball that's a program especially recently with a rich rich history and I I guess technically you can come back I highly doubt that happens but an incredible yeah. career for Drew Timmy tough night exactly let's go to the south region where Alabama went down in the Sweet 16 to San Diego State. I'm kind of disappointed in myself for not potentially seeing this coming. San Diego State, or I guess teams like San Diego State, have been the ones that have been able to take down Alabama in the past. Not many teams have been able to do it, but like I said, I did say this in the preview to be fair. Tennessee did it in a very similar way. What did they do? Well, I keep saying it. They mucked up the game defensively. San Diego State had some big plays, but this was not a high-octane offensive team. This is not a high-octane offensive performance. It was San Diego State that made Alabama uncomfortable. And the other big storyline is Brandon Miller. Do you think Brandon Miller took too many shots? Because he was cold the whole tournament, and in this game he went three for 19 one for 10 from three-point range, six turnovers. Now, Brandon Miller is your superstar. He's by far the best player on the team, arguably the best player in the country. He He's where your team could potentially ride and die, but we've also talked about how many options Alabama has. So I wonder if he just played, tried to play too much hero ball. I'm kind of back and forth on this, but I'm curious your opinion. So, yes, Brandon Miller had a bad night. He had a bad tournament, frankly. Didn't score anything in the first round. Didn't have a fantastic game against Maryland. And this one, obviously, you mentioned before, three for 19 is not going to cut it. But no one else had a good night either for Bama. And that's where I'm sort of stuck on it. They shot three for 27 as a team from three-point range, which yeah. is an incredible statistic. Just yeah. <laughs> like so it's two for 17 outside of Miller, yeah. Man, like you, it's hard to win. It's hard to win when you shoot three for 27 from three point range. And 
Alabama has had some hot and cold nights, and we've mentioned before on the t- on the on the pod that typically you beat Alabama by making it a low scoring game, not a high scoring game. So I remember texting you. I'm not saying I called it or anything, but I remember texting you. I'm like, look, man, if Alabama can get by San Diego State, I like their chances to go to the Final Four and possibly the championship game. But they couldn't get by them. San Diego State also had athletes. Um, their defense is stocked with six, seven dudes yeah. that will scare you to death if you are a wing or even a center, frankly. Um, and mm. I think that really affected the tide as well. Just like San Diego State could not have played a better game according to their game plan on defense specifically. Offense, we'll get to that in probably the Creighton-San Diego State game, but defense, they had a great great game plan overall. Yeah, I'm curious your takes on the defensive ways that San, San Diego State went about defending Creighton, but we'll get to that in a second. First off, Creighton takes down Princeton 86-75. to 75. This was a game where Creighton was simply the better team, in my opinion. Like I think that was just the storyline to take away. Everything was clicking offensively. Kalkbrenner, he had his 22. Three balls were falling for Baylor Shireman. Actually, I take that back. Ryan Nemhard actually was a little bit cold, but it didn't matter because everything else was clicking. And that's ultimately my takeaway. It's just great. It's not like Princeton had a bad night, but on a good night, Princeton's not going to be great. Yeah, fantastic run for the Tigers. Let's just say that on the on the on the front here, Mitch Henderson absolutely coached his butt off the entire tournament from Arizona to Missouri. And even like in uh, the Sweet 16 against Princeton, they had it down to eight, down to six, really, um, with a couple minutes left uh, when he went to a 1-3-1 zone, which I thought was a really smart idea, putting Tosan at the top there because he had four fouls. Um, but like, as you said, Creighton just, when they're that good offensively, 23 for 31 from inside the arc, you can't beat them if you're Princeton, unfortunately. But great run for C- great run for uh, Princeton. We'll see Creighton in the Elite Eight. All right, and then we had San Diego State, who took down Creighton, fifty-seven to fifty-six. We'll talk about the we'll talk about the foul call in a second. But first off, I want to talk about the point you brought up about San Diego State's defense. They don't have a true big like seven foot three center, but they have a lot of six, seven guys. And it was very interesting how they were able to defend Creighton. And sometimes they were able to get the ball to the rim and score because they're just so athletic Creighton that is. But for the most part, you couldn't put the ball on the deck against this team because they're, they just have such good hands. They're able to steal the ball, able to get in the passing lanes. I felt like Kalkbrenner had a size advantage. I felt like he should have eaten more. He should have been able to take advantage of that more. He had 17 points. I felt like that could have been more. And the post-entry passes definitely were an issue because you can't, like I said, you can't put the ball on the ground against San Diego State. You got to feed him up high. But at the same time, there are a couple of finishes, especially in the late latter stretch, that Kalkbrenner was not able to make, even though he had a size advantage. And credit to San Diego State because – they they d- didn't have a one guy to match up with Kalkbrenner, but as a unit, they were able to take down Creighton. Yeah, absolutely. I do think one thing about Kalkbrenner in particular, but and this applies to Creighton 
as an entire team as well is that they're not very strong. Um, they're they're big, but they're not like they're not going to get push you off your your spot. If you're, especially if you're San Diego State and you got got guys like Ladie and Johnson and Mensa guarding you. Um, Kalkbrenner, I noticed like just couldn't have quite have his way with San Diego State's bigs like he did in the Big East. Um, and I think that really frustrated Kalkbrenner, especially towards the end. Like you mentioned, he missed a couple of bunnies, um, didn't get the rebounds necessarily he was getting um, throughout the season. So I think that San Diego State did a really good job guarding Creighton as a whole. They missed some three-pointers that if they had made, they probably would have um, they probably would have advanced at one point in the second half each the teams were shooting a combined one for 15 from three. Um, we'll get to the overall vibe of the game towards the end. But yeah, I thought San Diego State did what they had to do against the Blue Jays. All right, let's talk about the foul call. Final seconds, San Diego State driving, and it was a pretty – there was contact. It wasn't a lot of contact, but I thought it was enough contact. It was on the hip area when uh, San Diego State was going for the floater in the mid-range, and they called it a foul. It was a tie game. Final second, San Diego State ended up shooting free throws, missed the first, made the second. They win 57 to 56. There was a lot of controversy on social media. Should they have called the foul? I, I heard a lot of the refs decided this game, and I think that's absolute blasphemy because the refs did not decide the game. The players decide the game, and the refs had to call the foul. I don't agree with the sentiment that you should officiate the game differently in the first five minutes of the game versus the last five seconds of the game. If it's a foul, it's a foul and the rules are the rules. So you shouldn't be able to make a little bit more contact with the player driving to the hoop with five seconds left in the game. than you can with 16 minutes left in the first half. What do you think about this? Yeah. So I agree with what everything you just said. Um, I think that not making a call if you're a referee is equally deciding the game as if you would make the call because both of those affect the final result, albeit in different ways, obviously. Uh, I think that if you wanted to make the argument that it shouldn't have been a foul, I think the people that are arguing that took the wrong angle. I would have instead sort of <laughs> gone around the fact that like it was a war out there. <laughs> Bodies were flying every single play in Creighton San Diego State. And frankly, like, a lot of the time, more contact than that was not called. Um, and if you wanted to say that and just claim that the refs should have officiated the game as it had been officiated the entire game, then I think you sort of have an argument. But I'm with you. I think the foul ultimately should have been called. I didn't have a problem with it. I would have agreed with it um, had I been you know, a fan, a rooting fan in that game. And I think that's where I stand on that. I, I'm okay with the call. Yeah, fair enough. And San Diego State made it to the Final Four without eclipsing 75 in a game. They did it the way that I love to say you can't do it, and that's dominant defense and just not great offense, but good enough offense to scrape by. And yeah, I agree. Uh, let's be clear. One more thing here. This this was a bad game. Like, we can say that. Like, even yeah. though it went to the Final Four and even though it was decided in the final minute, does not make it a good game. 
there were bad offensive plays. There were some good defensive plays, but man, that game was a rough watch at some some point. San Diego State players, they don't just miss shots. They they, they miss <laughs> shots, man. Yeah, their um, screen just went cold from outside. Uh, it wasn't a pleasant game to watch, but luckily we um, got a good one after it. Yeah, no, there are some wide open shots that were either absolute bricks or just didn't even hit the rim at all. But uh, I, I, we'll preview the final four, like we said. But they, they did it the unconventional way. And that's why March Madness, as much analysis as we could have, it's madness for a reason. Final region, though, Midwest. And this might be my favorite to talk about because we're going to talk about my Miami Hurricanes. Not my Miami Hurricanes, but – I've adopted the Hurricanes just because of how much I love Coach Jim Laranega and their playing style. And first off, we're going to talk about Miami and Houston. Miami winning that one 89 to 75. Ben, this is two years in a row that Miami has flustered what was considered a superior team and a great offensive team. And just just an elite team and to get to the elite eight that's two years in a row Miami they did it with a talented offense we know they had that but it's it was their defense that was able to make plays as well and they beat like I said Houston 89 to 75 yeah the Cougars really had a tough night shooting the ball from outside just nine of 31 from three Jairus Walker I thought had a really good game Jairus Walker had a really good tournament in my opinion He's just a man inside, and I think he's going to be really talented going forward, whether he declares for the draft or not. But Miami, that's how Miami has won games all season. They will outscore you, and they will make you mess up enough on the defense to come out away with the win. Nigel Pack was fantastic, went 7 for 10 from 3 at 26 points overall. Isaiah Wong also eclipsed the 20-point mark. Their guards are so fun, man, and they feel like they're never-ending. Even if Pack and Wong go on the bench, they have Beverly or Poplar or Walker or Miller or, you know, they just keep coming. Joseph, whoever you want to plug in, it's the same. It's the same deal. Um, and just the way that the Hurricanes held up, especially inside, I thought was impressive as well. And they came away. They were the better team that game. And they came away with a win. Yeah. I think that also a big difference between – Last year's Miami team, who didn't make the Elite Eight, by the way. Not, not too bad of a team. And this year's Miami team is their rebounding. Shout out to Norshad Omir. He's a big reason for that. And Miller taking another step up. And Jim Laranega, like he could just he could flat out coach. He is the only team, his Miami Hurricanes, to go to the Elite Eight in both 2022 and 2023. So shout out to Miami. We'll talk about them more in just a second, but let's talk about the team that they played to get to the final four. And that is Texas. Texas beat Xavier 83 to 71. I think this was just a matter of Xavier not having enough presence on the inside. Kunkel did hit his five threes, but otherwise the offense was not really impressive. And I think really I talked about how Xavier was able to have enough balanced scoring to not miss the presence of Zach Fremantle too much. They missed the presence of Zach Fremantle in this game. 
Yeah, I agree. Texas, this this was a 12-point win for Texas. This was never a 12-point game. And if you watched any of it, Texas, I, was, I believe, was up 45-29 at halftime. It was never really close. They just had a well-rounded well-rounded team right here. I mean, every anything Xavier did, Texas just did better, in my opinion, whether it was on the inside or their guard play. Um, they looked like the most cohesive team uh out there and frankly one of the most cohesive teams in the ncaa tournament and just really impressive win overall for the longhorns and their depth their bench bishop and rice having 18 and 16 respectively definitely helped especially with some injuries in the starting lineup and then they went on to play miami but what happened miami won this one 88 to 81 and for much of this game texas was winning and for much of this game texas was winning at miami's game and Similar concept to like you said about the Xavier game, just doing what Miami did, but doing it better. On defense, yeah. a lot of ball pressure. On offense, a lot of shot making. And in the game, Texas shot 10 for 25 from three. Miami took just eight attempts. But eventually what happened, Ben? Miami turned on a gear. And Jordan Miller consistent throughout. Shout out to him, 7 for 7 from the field, 13 for 13 uh, from the free throw line, 27 points. Isaiah Wong hit some huge shots, and Miami's head to the Final Four. I'm just nonstop happy about that. Yeah, the the shot making from both teams in the first half in particular was incredible, especially because it was played right after the Creighton-San Diego State game where no one could hit a shot. Just to see that high-level offense from – each team in the first half was really great to see overall. Miami was not playing the best defense, if we're being real here. Um, they were really struggling to guard the three-point line in particular. Uh, every their guard, Texas guards were just eating them up. Serge Barry Rice had a fantastic game. I think was a little underutilized, especially going down the stretch. He didn't get enough shots, in my opinion. But like you said, man, the Hurricanes just turned on. They just turned on. Wuga Poplar also had a fantastic game. He had 16 points. Shout out Wuga Poplar just for being named Wuga Poplar. I mean, come on. Like, that's a guy you want to cheer for. Jim Laranega has now taken George Mason and Miami to the Final Four. Like, those are not easy jobs. Miami's been good for the past decade or so. Miami's not an easy job. They really didn't have much success to their name before before Laranega got there. And you know, look at them now. I think that, you know, he, he's been a fantastic coach overall. He's made, really made a great team, utilized the transfer portal well. In, in particular, Omir and Miller and Pack are all transfers coming in, and they deserve this final four, man. I mean, they beat everyone they had to. They beat the, the highest seeds possible that they could play. They beat a 12 seed, a four seed, a one seed, and a two seed on their way to the final four, so it's not even a fluke. And Coming in, I can't wait to see what they look like against UConn. Jim Laranega just gets it, man. Uh, like, I, I I sent you that quote that he had on NIL, and you talked about the transfer portal, how he's utilized that. A lot of it is also because he was able to keep Isaiah Wong around and utilize NIL. Not only NIL gets guys in the doors, it gets guys to stay in the door. And I'll just read you this quote that I sent you, Ben, for the listeners that didn't see. Jim Laranega... I think in between the Houston game and the Texas game in an interview, he said, TV makes money, right? The shoe companies make money. The universities make money. The athletic directors, they benefit from their relationships with the shoe companies. 
and the coaches make a hell of a living. What's wrong with that filtering down? And just for a 73 year old man to be saying stuff like this, there's a reason why he'll, if he wants to, he'll be able to coach forever and be successful forever. The the realest 73 year old you're going to know, man. Yeah. I mean, like the players love him. If you've seen any interaction, like especially after the game or like in the locker room after a win, they're all just celebrating with him. It's, it's just a super fun team to root for. Uh, the ACC finds itself in the final four once again. And man, I can't wait. We're going to preview this final four on Wednesday, I believe, but there's so much to talk about with this tournament. I can't wait to see what Houston is going to look like on Saturday and Monday. All right. So yeah, like Ben said, we'll get to the final four preview. That will be our next episode. Thanks for watching and listening this to this episode. Be sure to leave us a like if you are watching on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you are watching on YouTube or listening to our podcast on Apple or Spotify. But once again, thanks for watching and listening and take care.